0: everyone. Welcome to Risk Roundup. In a digital global age, each year brings more complex security threats, advanced malicious code and unexpected vulnerabilities. While security industry is making a serious attempt to fight back to secure cyberspace, geospace and space, in short referred to as CGS, in the escalating arms race against advanced malware, the efforts to manage security risks are facing complex challenges. As malicious software or malware are evolving and becoming very sophisticated, malware threats are becoming very costly for nations, its governments, industries, organizations, academia, and also individuals. In short, referred to as NDIOAI. With the sophisticated hacking tools becoming abundant, the rapidly multiplying security threats and vulnerabilities across CGS is greatly simplifying the effort required for intruders or criminals to compromise a computer network. Moreover, when computer applications now often share components and data with one another using respective organizational network as their primary interface, it further complicates the already complex security efforts. While hacking once largely constituted an intellectual exercise for security professionals, hacking for profit has now become a rapidly growing criminal industry. When entire underground world is springing up that is solely focusing on making money by invading nations, its government industries, organizations, academia, and individual network resources, it is a cause of great concern. It is perhaps time to go beyond outdated rest of endpoint virus scanners and network-based intrusion prevention products to the next generation anti-malware tools. To discuss this further, I'm delighted to welcome Igor Volovich, CEO of Romance Cyber Systems, Welcome Igor, we are delighted to have you on Risk Roundup. Thanks for having (laughs) me. Great, wonderful Igor. So let's start with this very fundamental question for the benefit of our global viewers and listeners. What is a malware?
1: Well, malware is a piece of software that compromises a system. That's the simplest definition. It's a piece of malicious software created for a specific purpose or a series of purposes and uh, they tend to be uh, used for unauthorized access or for taking over somebody else's system.
0: I see No, that's a good definition. that's a good background. So uh, Igor, how do you think these malwares infect or get entry into anyone's computer, either your computer, my computer, or anyone's computer? How do they enter? Well,
1: yeah, there are many ways. And you know we've been doing this for over 25, 30 years. you know malware has been around since earliest days of, of computer systems. You know I think we're looking back to 40 years ago, I think is when we saw the first one. And it began as exploration. Uh, Computer hackers, what we refer to as white hats or maybe even gray hats, were trying to explore the capabilities of systems and trying to understand uh, what they could do on these new networks. Uh, So it began more or less benignly. And then slowly but surely, we saw the emergence of what we currently refer to as real malware, Uh, systems or software packages that were really made to take advantage of vulnerabilities or to elicit some sort of a gain for the malware author. Uh, so that, that's been sort of a change that we've seen over the last couple of decades. And very recently we've seen the emergence of monetization where malware has become a tool of criminal organizations worldwide where they actually use this uh, type of uh, technique to compromise systems for gain. Either to, uh, to get passwords, to user accounts, uh, to take over systems and use their computing cycles. Uh, or to actually monetize this in other ways, like uh, DDoS attacks against banks, DDoS attacks against casinos, et cetera. Et cetera. So then we, we have this whole spectrum of threats that proliferate now. The way they materialize is different. It's as different as anything we see in the physical world. Um, the paradigms have shifted over the time, but what has not, what remains constant, is the ability of the miscreants to really take advantage of the vulnerabilities that continue to persist. As long as there's a human element, there's a way to get in. And we can get into that a little more down the line.
0: Right. Right. No, that is uh, very true, uh, Igor. And th- those are good points. Huh? Uh, based on your experience, because you have worked in this field for such a long time, what are the major types of malware that you have seen, you know, out there, you know, that are really very troubling and we should be w- aware about?
1: Well, a lot of focus is now on Trojans, and uh, these are, the, of course, the uh, software systems or, or packages that uh, masquerade as a legitimate piece of software that then get into the system by uh, some sort of a ruse, and then uh, exploit the system, so it's a classic Trojan horse. Um, These have taken uh, over the malware world uh, over the last uh, 15-20 years, that's what we see the prevalence of, and the reason is, uh, the malware writers are really after that monetization. They want the monetary gain, and to get it, they need to have a consistent, sustainable position on somebody's endpoint. They want to take over, and they want to stay there. And uh, that's what Trojans allow them to do. There are many other forms of malware. Uh, you know, there are worms, there are polymorphic worms. There's all kinds of other things. Uh, but what we focus today primarily on is the Trojans.
0: I see. As you know, I understand that now. Uh, Let if we talk about Trojans, uh, Igor. Then uh, what if you are an organization or a scientist trying to uh, analyze the behavior of Trojan? What, how would you understand that? How, where, how do you go about understanding the behavior of Trojan or any other malware?
1: Well, it's like anything, right? It requires research, and you have to have significant resources. Uh, what we've seen, of course, is the reliance on the vendor community, the software manufacturers, to create the software packages that are capable of combating that threat. And that's actually very interesting, that this is exactly, that, that, that research component has become the Achilles heel of the anti-malware industry. And let me explain how that works. Uh, The proliferation of malware continues at an incredible pace. We're looking at exponential growth in individual strains of malware, uh, where we're now looking at on the order of 140 to 150 million individual strains of malware per year. And that's the the latest data that we have is from 2014. Uh, So when we look at 150 million individual strains of malware, it's impossible to catch them all, typecast them all, develop signatures for them, and then do it as a single vendor. So what we've seen is a lot of collaboration and cooperation between different anti-malware vendors like Kaspersky and Symantec, McAfee, Microsoft, Avast, and uh, they're cooperating on the research side trying to explore as many of these malware variants and to understand what's common between them what are the mechanisms that they use for compromising systems, what kind of vulnerabilities they exploit, and then working that track back towards the manufacturers of the actual software, like Microsoft and Adobe, Uh, you know, some of the prevalent players in the market who have a huge footprint on the end user systems and in the corporate space, and who tend to be responsible for the vast majority of of vulnerabilities that these malware systems exploit. Uh, So research is very important, but it's very difficult to do simply because of that huge volumetric growth. And that's, that's become sort of the, the problem within the industry. We can't keep
0: up. Right. No, we can't keep up. You're absolutely right. I mean, you're talking about millions of malware strains. And that is very difficult to keep up. You're absolutely right about that. So uh, how, how are malware attacks executed?
1: Well, it's it's interesting that the human element continues to be the prevalent vector for these attacks. And it, it will. we predict that it will always continue as long as humans are in the loop We will continue to be the exploitable element. Um, We are the weakest link. Um, We keep seeing phishing and spear phishing being very, very effective. Again, because it exploits the human element. Uh, There are systems that exploit vulnerabilities, uh, but yet they still need to have access to the endpoint in order to execute. So they have to either get on there through a network connection, they have to arrive by email, they have to arrive over some sort of a medium and frequently that medium becomes the human element. We've even seen it in systems that are actually disconnected from the global internet, uh, as the case was with Stuxnet, the Iranian centrifuge compromise, uh, where we saw systems that were completely isolated, yet sneaker netting, or basically somebody taking a USB stick and introducing what became uh, the origin of Stuxnet into that system. uh, That's exactly how how the compromise occurred. It went from a connected system to a disconnected system by means of a human being. So we're seeing a lot of this happening. Um, And phishing continues to be effective. It tends to work. Uh, We're seeing compromise uh, ratios of up to 80% in some of the environments that we test. You know, uh, a lot of the companies make great money on this particular piece of uh, of, um, the pie, the phishing exploitation or the phishing testing. All right, where you deploy a benign message just to see how aware your population is. Uh, the results that we get back within corporate environment sometimes is is striking, you know, like I said 80 85% of the people click on the links and would be compromised if there was real weaponized piece of malware behind it. So that that's a little frightening mm-hmm. uh, and uh, until we get more awareness out there and more layers of security and also get really effective anti-malware technology on the actual endpoint until that happens we're we'll still be Playing catch up with the malware
0: trainers right? You're absolutely right. I mean, there are a lot of entry points, and it is uh, uh, scary. Of course, you know, for people who are not educated, who don't have awareness about, you know, how these things happen, for them it is very scary. So, like, for let like, for those people, you know, who don't have much education about how these things work, how would they detect malware on a computer? If anybody wants to see, okay, let me make sure that you know, there is no uh, malware or there is an infection on my computer, how do they go by it? What is the process for that?
1: Well, that's, that's a great question, Jesri, And, uh, you know, this is something that I've been very passionate about for a long time and having the roles that I've had as an advisor and then a leader of security for large multinational companies, uh, that's something that we've dealt with very deeply and, and very frequently, the idea that security awareness can be that panacea that it can become that silver bullet that sort of solves the problem. It can be certainly one of the errors in the quiver, if you want to call it that, uh, but it certainly won't be the end-all, be-all uh, solution. Awareness is great. Uh, the problem is it takes a lot of effort, and it does take a lot of sustainability to, to run that on, a concurrent va- on, a, on an ongoing basis um, to kind of keep that level of awareness at a certain minimum threshold. And again, the effectiveness of this, of this is disputed. When it's a part of a larger, more holistic security program, it can be effective. When you throw awareness at the problem by itself, it's it's basically useless, right? It's kind of like throwing anything at the wall, hoping that it sticks. So uh, it's very difficult to expect an end user, even a sophisticated end user, um, to detect compromise by modern weaponized malware. You know, We've seen uh, just in the last couple of weeks uh, weaponized uh, PDF files being introduced uh, as part of phishing and spam campaigns. Uh, very effective all you have to do is open the file. You see nothing, you see the file, you see you see the document, and then the system's already compromised by the time you open it. So uh, when you you have that sort of sophistication that exploits some deep vulnerabilities within the systems themselves, and the software and operating systems themselves, uh, the end user is no, no threat to the malware creator. They're just simply not a barrier to these threats. So the onus is on the security industry to create products and solutions that are truly capable of combating these threats. And unfortunately, we haven't seen that emerge. We've seen a lot of solutions, we've seen a lot of proclamations, we've seen a lot of promises. And quite frankly, the antivirus industry has fallen on its face over the last 20 years. Had we known what the world would look like today, you know, 140, 150 million malware strains, maybe John McAfee would have invented the the right sort of Mm anti-malware, right? That wouldn't be static, that wouldn't be based on uh, individual signatures. Uh, But that was not the world that existed 20 years ago. The world that we're in now demands these kinds of solutions, and unfortunately, most of the malware industry, anti-malware industry, has not been very effective in
0: providing them. That is true. That is why I hear you on that. Now, let's say some people who have understanding about malware's technical knowledge, and uh, they are not part of the world which are working on the research and you know doing something about it. If they are individuals like that, if they come up with some kind of malware on you know, their computer, and then they rec- recognize that, OK, this is a malware, how do they report to someone? How do they, what is the process? Where do they go to report?
1: Well, so there, there is something, that, that's an interesting question, and I, I'm glad you asked it. Uh, we've had, um, there's a couple of components there. Uh, we have to recognize there are different communities and different footprints uh, out there in the population of, of end users. You have the corporate space, you have the small-medium space, and then you have the home users and small office users, where we're looking at under 10, 10, 15 users per site. Um, they, their use cases are completely different. Their support models are completely different. And where you have a corporate user who may have their own internal security department or IT department that they can rely upon. And then that's their first point of contact. And then from that point forward, the company can actually take, take lead on, on dealing with those threats and reporting those threats. Uh, for individual users, there, there, there's very little. Uh, and in recognition of that, the industry has come up with a lot of these threat intelligence platforms. Or components to their products. Uh, you know, Kaspersky was one of the first ones who did it. Uh, many others. You know, Symantec, McAfee, Microsoft. Uh, where basically, if you detect a piece of malware on your system, and a lot of this happens very transparently and really out of sight of the actual user, uh, when a piece of malware is detected, information about it is bubbled up to sort of the the cloud that's managed by that anti malware vendor. So Microsoft can be alerted about threats that are seen around the world by its own software now if it's a true zero-day threat, meaning it's undetectable and it's just compromised this system, uh, short of actually doing full forensic dump on the system, uh, isolating it, and then performing a lot of testing on it and research, uh, something that actually happens in malware laboratories, short of something like that, it's really, there is really no channel. And uh, I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, the individual user really does not have a whole lot of ways to inform somebody about it unless they're very savvy, unless they're very sophisticated, they know about some of the portals, some of the sites, they might be able to report it to an anti-malware company that they have some affinity for, or they happen to be a user of. So let's say if I'm a McAfee user, I might say, okay, I'm going to send it to McAfee if I have some malware sample. Uh, but the odds of somebody even being able to detect an unknown piece of malware in their system are so minuscule, um, it's, it's not really a viable question there either. So we're, we're looking at... The failure to detect, and then the inability to really do anything about it, and that kind of leaves the end users in a lurch. But and That's where we are today.
0: But Igor, there are a lot of smart individuals. There are so many knowledgeable computer science people that they may come across, you know, some of these mm-hmm. malwares. And I think that, you know, I personally think that there needs to be a development of a system or a process by which uh, uh, individuals. Uh, can you know they have a, a way to report something like this because mm-hmm. if we depend just on researchers and research institutes uh, like, you know, Kaspersky and the uh, Microsoft and others that you're talking about, I think uh, it, it is not wise we need to create a central global database by which anyone you know across nations mm-hmm. They are able to you know report something as dangerous as this. And it's nice, it, it is good that way. We involve you know public, we involve individuals and you know motivate them to report anything malicious or anything uh, that is not right, then they see that you know that is something that they become aware of, that there is a way, there is a process by which they can report that. But I hope that you know uh some someone you know takes over that initiative. But let me ask you this: if you're a corporation and uh, if you are working in a corporation or an enterprise, and uh, suddenly you see that your system has got infected, mm-hmm. now uh, you report, of course, to you know through the proper channels in your corporation or enterprise. But what can users do in such circumstances to assist uh, incident handlers that their corporations have, other than the last section of use use uh, that they did before the system got infected? I mean. Uh, Is there some guideline established about uh, educating them what are the steps that they need to follow if you are working in a corporation, what to do?
1: Sure. So again, it depends on the use case. Uh, If we're looking at the standard office user information worker, um, then we're looking at some standard models that we can deploy. And uh, typically in companies, what they advise end users unless they're within an actual IT group or, or a uh, security team, they advise them to isolate the system as much as possible, perform as few actions as possible, uh, don't allow the threat to propagate, that's what we're after, and preserve the state as much as possible for forensic investigation, which means don't shut it down, preserve the memory state, unplug it from the network, and keep it isolated. That's typically the, the entire purpose of whatever... Uh, response measures that they put in place. Now, uh, the education piece, absolutely. Within a corporate enterprise environment, it's very easy to propagate something like that and then continue to educate and then kind of include that as part of the overall ongoing security awareness piece. Right? So that that's definitely easy. Uh, for end users out in the world, individual users at home or small offices that don't have the luxury of that kind of a support system, it's very difficult to propagate that sort of knowledge. So by the time you're compromised, it's too late to go out and Google, what do I do? And, and what I do with my system. Typically, it boils down to just what we call flatten and rebuild, right? We isolate the system, pull whatever data we can off that hasn't been compromised, scan it cleanly in a separate system that we know is good, and then break that system down, rebuild it with a new OS, and then hope for the best. So that that is a typical model. In fact, that's the model we employed at Microsoft when I was there, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, actually, 15 years ago <laughs> when I started. And uh, that, that was the model, right? You isolate the system, you find out if it's a basic malware threat if it's a part of something larger, which means you have to have good intel internally, you have to understand uh, what kind of threats are propagating through your environment, is this something that's absolutely net new, or is this just part of the outbreak that you're having, and of course corporations have big outbreaks ongoing all the time, that's just part of life. Um, so you, you do your basic forensics, you figure out if you need to go deeper, if not You pull the data off, you flatten and rebuild. And this is is mainly, mainly driven by the fact that we're not in the forensic investigations prosecutorial business. We're trying to run the business, we're trying to get things back online, which means the faster we can get there and the sooner we can isolate the threat, that's what we're after. So isolation, preservation, investigation, and then get back to business.
0: Good, good point, Sigur. Now, what processes and procedures need to be done to mitigate operating system and application vulnerabilities that malware might exploit if you are in a corporation? Uh, how will you go by that?
1: Well, the threat and vulnerability management uh, operation has to be fairly robust. Uh, you know, today we're dealing with a lot of uh, third-party risks that may lie outside of our control. And so when we start to look at our entire operating environment, it's important to understand, first, what are we dealing with? What is the landscape? What kind of operating systems are here to begin with? You know, I've been in environments when I was in my advisory roles and when I I was in private practice uh, where I would walk into an environment and I would ask a basic question. Show me the inventory. And a lot of my clients couldn't do that. So we're dealing with very dynamic environments. We see the creep of uh, shadow IT. And if our listeners are not aware of what that means, basically, these are third-party services that are procured by the users outside of normal supply chains. So that creates that shadow IT uh, environment within the, the corporate space uh, that may be outside of our visibility. It may uh, have a lot of data proliferation into it that we can control. And of course, the risks that are being introduced outside of our control as well. So when we see a lot of these things, a lot of these pieces moving around very dynamically, it's very difficult to pin down what it is that we're dealing with. So that's job number one. What do we have in place? What do we need to protect? Uh, you can protect it all as much as you'd like to, you have to do some risk prioritization. So once you understand what are the crown jewels, what are the most important assets, what will break the business absolutely positively if these are compromised, uh, then you focus on those. Of course, some of the regulatory concerns go along with that, you know, what, what must we protect by mandate, and then what must we protect based on the risk to our business. Um, and then once you figure those out, I mean, these are big buckets, but this sort of gives you a general idea of what we need to focus on first. Look there, kind of try to funnel it down, to a specific discrete set of systems, applications, environments, and then understand what exists within those, right? Yeah. And that's where you can start focusing what kind of vulnerabilities might exist there. So it's it's an ongoing process, very important to understand once that's built, it has to be sustained. And as technologies evolve, as new systems are being introduced, that you have a very good process for identifying what that actually happens. So you have to have a trigger going from your supply chain, from your third parties, from your partners as things get connected or introduced into the environment that there's a process trigger that enables you to go in and figure out what just showed up on site and what do I have to deal with.
0: Right, I know that's, that's good analysis, good points good. So uh, based on your knowledge, uh, working in this field uh, for so long, how do you think nations manage malware risk currently? Do they all follow the same process, do they all follow the same tools and technology, or each country has a you know, different way of managing their own malware risk?
1: Right. So a great question. So, you know, I work in D.C. and, you know, I've spent some time as a fellow with a think tank here working on cyber policy at a national level, and I continue to be engaged in these conversations uh, today. So I I won't go into too much detail because that's a whole separate conversation that can take days, and it's very fascinating. I think the nation state angle is is very interesting. Um, What we are dealing with, and I've written about it last year as well, uh, we need to recognize that most of what we think of as national infrastructure, especially critical infrastructure is not in the hands of national governments. It's actually in the hands of private industry. Uh, you know, When we look at the United States, you know, the, the water systems, sewer systems, uh, the nuclear energy systems, I mean, all of these things outside of the research facilities that are actually owned by the United States government are outside of their control. So we have to have that private-public partnership where the industry can be sort of the front runner on a lot of these threats. They have the footprint, they have the visibility, uh, and they also have the agility to move as the threats dictate. Uh, with the U.S. government, with the procurement systems and the acquisition systems, uh, you know, a lot of things take a long time. And uh, you know, when you lay out a five-year budget for a federal agency, that's pretty much locked in place. So you have to rely on the private industry to sort of be the, the research arm, if you want to call it that, of the federal government, and be their partner in fighting these threats. Now, that does not mean that the federal government or, or any national government I guess to sort of absolve themselves of the responsibility. Either there has to be an active bilateral, true public-private partnership, and I've been very involved with that, pretty much within uh, over the last 15 years. You know, I was at Microsoft when we created something called Botnet Task Force, involving a lot of law enforcement and intelligence community agencies from around the world. You know, we went to Interpol and we talked to Secret Service and we talked to the FBI and we talked to the predecessor to DHS, um, and 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 same cu- counterparts in other countries. Um, because that's the level of attention that these issues have to get. The recognition that malware continues to be the prevalent factor in cyber risk around the world, and the fact that we have to continue paying attention, but also the understanding that it enables a lot of these organized criminal groups to monetize their operations very effectively, uh, with very little risk, you know, where they used to have uh, to rely on what we have come to recently call kinetic operations, right? They have to actually go kidnap somebody, or steal something, or uh, compromise an oil pipeline and divert some some oil, things like that. Now you can just do it from behind a desk, so the risk is very little, transparency is very little, traceability is non-existent, uh, attribution is very difficult to achieve, and these are very attractive. So the risk versus reward is it's a no-brainer for any criminal organized groups, uh, and of course when you look at nation to nation relationships and the role that malware plays in those cyber conflicts. You know, we've seen a recent white paper from uh, uh, one of the major think tanks here in DC uh, last year talking about the cyber conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And uh, that's being recognized as sort of part of these new emerging uh, type of hybrid conflict hybrid conflicts uh, where we have kinetic operations on the ground with actual conventional forces, and now we have cyber operations happening in the cybersphere. Um, and you know they, they may be happening for an intelligence capability, they might be happening simply to degrade somebody's capability, or to simply degrade their C4I overall, right? simply to affect their kinetic operations as well. So there's a lot of components here. Uh, but again, malware play, plays a prevalent role because it's so effective. And because the volumetric nature of it, and the ease by which we can create additional samples and, and strains of malware, it escapes the ab- ability of the private industry or the, the public sector to keep up. So as long as it, keeps it, as long as it remains effective, we'll continue to see the proliferation.
0: Right, right, and I hear you on that. Now, a lot of times you hear this term that we have a layered approach to malware attack. Uh, how, what do enterprises mean when they say that they have a layered approach?
1: Well, we're talking about layers of defense, and you know th- this is something that's been uh, promulgated for a long, long time. Um, quite frankly, it's a—I I have a biased opinion about that. Uh, of course, now that I, I lead the, our company, Roman Cyber Systems, where we focus on delivering a real capability at a very specific layer, uh, it certainly doesn't negate the need to have other layers in place nothing's perfect, and as long as humans are in the loop, things will happen. Uh, so we definitely want to layer it out. But what we mean by that is as a threat traverses through your network, that it ha- you have opportunities to stop it using different uh, layers of security. So you might have some gateway out front, you know, a firewall of some sort. You might have a web application firewall, or we'll call it WAF, uh, something that's um, uh, like an IPS, intrusion prevention system. Uh, you might have a malware gateway, you might have a spam gateway, et cetera, et cetera. And so you have multiple layers through which a connection has to traverse. Now now the the cloud is a part of everybody's operations. That creates some interesting use cases where you basically have to rely on a third party to deliver a lot of these services for you or on your behalf. So the data might be yours, but that's about it. The infrastructure is somebody else's, the applications are somebody else's, they owned and managed by somebody else. And the physical locations, you may not necessarily even know where they are because of the way the cloud works. So, if you are contracting with Amazon or Microsoft uh, or Oracle, and your data is in their cloud, your applications are in their cloud, you may not necessarily know where that data is at any given time. So, you are relying on a lot of that trust and a lot of that capability, and you hope that you can contractually obligate them to deliver that same level of security service uh, that you rely upon. Unfortunately, and this is interesting. A lot of these third-party relationships uh, require a basic minimum, so they establish a threshold frequently uh, as part of a compliance obligation or compliance mandate, either a regulatory mandate or some sort of an industry standard like uh, PCI, the Payment Cut Industry Standard. Um, And as long as you comply with that, you're fine. And um, it creates sort of this binary yes or no, on or off uh, relationship where once the company or your third-party provider passes that uh, that, uh, threshold, they're considered to be secure, which is absolutely not the case. Compliance and security are two different things. And uh, a lot of the recognition is just not there yet. So we are, we're looking at how do, we, how do we maintain those layers when data traverses outside of our environment? And uh, how do we sustain that level of security that we're looking for? And how do we continue to understand what kind of components are providing a piece of the puzzle and what does the puzzle look like in the end? Because today, with as much of our environment uh, being outside of, uh, of our actual premises as it is, uh, it's very difficult to ascertain. So being very vigilant, being very uh, mindful uh, of the architecture, the overall art- security architecture of your environment, uh, they can certainly bring value to the layered approach, uh, but again, it has to be managed, it has to be maintained, and a lot of that brain power has to remain within the confines of the actual organization. You can outsource the hardware. You can outsource the software, but you really can't outsource the strategy and the thinking.
0: Yes, absolutely. You are absolutely right. Now uh, we talked about how to identify the malware, how to you know see if your uh, computer system or networks are you know in, uh, infected with that. But how do you evaluate the malware risk once you identify? What is the process for evaluating the malware risk?
1: Right. So different types of malware pre- certainly present different kinds of risk. Uh, You know, depending on uh, whether it's a, let's say, uh, a ransomware, now that's a data destructive piece of malware. Uh, Once that's on, your data is actually physically lost. Uh, There have been some operations by law enforcement community uh, in partnership with the private industry in the last couple of years that have been successful in disrupting those criminal organizations. However, uh, the data is still most of the time lost. So that can be a very destructive, very catastrophic event for an organization especially when these these pieces of malware propagate very quickly and very effectively, uh, that can uh, create a a major, major problem for a company. Um, Now, this is where the enterprise environment, even though it's better defended, and it does have a lot of the services to rely upon, the close proximity and the speed by which these systems communicate and the fact that they are within sort of a trusted bubble creates that problem because the propagation is much faster versus individual users that have to be compromised individually the propagation may not be as fast, so you might compromise a single system in, in somebody's home, and they lose their data, and that's bad. Uh, versus a company where a threat proliferates into that into that environment, and then it propagates across 50, 60, 100, maybe a 1, thousand systems very quickly. So those are the two different two different paradigms. Um, so you look at the data destructive first, then you look at a system uh, at uh, software systems that allow you to exfiltrate data. So the compromise of systems for the purpose of exfiltration, either user credentials or actual confidential proprietary information. So we've seen a lot of the economic and industrial espionage uh, that relies upon these uh, kinds of paradigms. Uh, Trojans, again, we're talking about Trojans. Um, And then we'll look at more of a nuisance type uh, malware, uh, where it might be used by hacktivists to simply annoy somebody. Uh, So there may not be a monetization factor in play. It might just be somebody playing around online They create some piece of malware, or they they might, uh, you know, it it may not be designed to do bad things to begin with. Uh, It may be repurposed for that, and we've seen that also. uh, But primarily, we're looking at what's data destructive, what's malicious by design, and then things that are more of a nuisance factor that we could more or less ignore, uh, unless they begin to actually act differently. So these are, for me, the big three layers of of priority.
0: I see, I agree on that. Now, in case of uh, malware attack, we are talking here about organizations, enterprises. Do they generally have a backup plan or a backup and recovery assessment plan in place? You know to go forward.
1: Well, you know it's something that definitely comes into play when we talk about things like CryptoLocker, You know ransomware that actually encrypts your your drives, and uh, you know it, it can wreak havoc when you're talking about like sand systems or cloud systems where somebody's connected to these systems on on a permanent basis, and then uh, once the crypto locker malware gets on the system. Uh, then it encrypts the entire cloud storage site. Uh, so that happens. <coughs> Pardon me. Uh, but um, uh, so when we look at uh, recovery operations for something like that, that's absolutely required. If you don't have those in place and you don't back up on an ongoing basis, uh, you're pretty much out to lunch. You know, you've lost all your data. You might, I mean, if you're talking about uh, corporate uh, corporations, financials, let's say, that can be very catastrophic. If you can't send your quarterly results uh, to the street, you've got a big problem. You've got a regulatory problem. You've got a stock problem. You've got many issues. Uh, so that, that can be very destructive. Um, so again, focusing your risk priorities. That's very important. Knowing what your criticals are, understanding what's absolutely catastrophic to your business, what could be that sort of a, a knee capper for you, and then focusing the efforts there. So you may not be able to, again, uh, alert the inter- or, or surround the entire environment with these solutions uh, but you should be able to focus those where you need them uh, or we absolutely must have them
0: yes that's a good point uh, now how every i mean there are so many uh, different antivirus or anti malware softwares you know available so how do organizations go for these how many kinds of uh, anti malware softwares or antivirus softwares do the each organizations normally have do they have like one on each, you know, system, or do they have more than one? You know, like a layered approach, you know, several.
1: Sure. So uh, when we look at uh, the the anti-malware solutions that are common today, uh, the way that they integrate with the operating system that they protect uh, pretty much denies any other anti-malware solution. Uh, being on that same uh, on that same system, so because of how deeply they hook into the kernel, how, how many things they have to monitor, they have to have exclusive access to some system calls. Uh, you you can basically have only one anti malware solution per system. Now you can have maybe an anti spam, maybe uh, something for your browser. Those are kind of layers, additional layers of, of protection for the other endpoint. Uh, but an actual antivirus solution, you know, you can't have a McAfee and a Symantec and a Mac- Microsoft coexisting. Uh, now uh, some vendors have actually solve that problem, uh, so, sort of. Uh, so when we look at uh, something like FireEye, what they do is uh, they're able to use different engines to look at a piece of malware. Uh, VirusTotal is a great example, actually, uh, where they use you know, 40, 50 different uh, anti-malware ag- engines to scan a, a particular piece of malware. Now, it's very difficult to do in real time, It's very difficult to apply multiple engines like that to to a piece of malware. So uh, you don't see a lot of scalability there, but if you're dealing with a single piece of data that you pulled off somebody's system doing forensics, uh, you can certainly use a lot of that, uh, a lot of that approach. But um, when we're looking at an individual system, you're looking at a single solution. Now, uh, complex corporate environments tend to have as they acquire other environments and you know I've come from an environment they used to acquire a company every two weeks on average you do tend to acquire companies that use different solutions so integrating those and then bringing them into the fold so to speak you get exposed to different kinds of uh, opportunities you know somebody might have a better solution uh, but it's a much smaller company you know if it's a company of 100,000 users acquire a company of 10,000 users you're really not gonna transfer 100,000 users to a smaller company's uh, solution so sometimes Simple economics affect those decisions. Sometimes, uh, you know, uh, you have some entrenched opinions about the efe- efficacy of a particular solution, so you might get, uh, you might stay with a solution that may not be the, as cutting edge as you want. Uh, there are strategic relationships that might be in place. You know, I've come from environments where there is a ten-year ongoing relationship, uh, some sort of an OEM uh, contractual relationship as well, where you basically stay with a solution despite its assumed inefficacy. So th- those are some of the some of the uh, factors that people don't necessarily think of you know you think uh, let's go ahead and do a bake off let's figure out who's best and let's bring them in uh, may not necessarily be a an opportunity uh, in complex environments.
0: Right, 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 now I hear you on that. Now, wireless is becoming such a new norm these days, you know, across uh, organizations. So when we use wireless, when any organizations uses wireless network, they add up more complexity and security challenges. So uh, if the security of a wireless network enabled and properly continued when they, you know, start using the wireless networks across organizations, because a lot of times like, they just uh, kind of get ignored, the wireless networks.
1: Sure, uh, yeah, we've seen we've seen that a lot. You know, especially uh, when you look at complex environments that go through a lot of M and A activity, and you know, today who isn't. Um, you, you definitely see a lot of that. So when we, when we do the inventories and we try to kind of cast a net around our environment and understand what it is that we're dealing with as we spoke about earlier, it's very important not to ignore the wireless because that tends to be that, sort of the easiest vector of compromise. It's the easiest point of entry sometimes. And uh, because it's also very easy to set them up, uh, you know, to kind of bridge the external network into your internal network, we've seen that happen uh, quite frequently. So having a lot of awareness around your wireless that is specific to the wireless segment of your network. Uh, you know, Having solutions that allow you to look for rogue access points, uh, that's very important, right? So you have to work with your networking team and you have to be very aware of this. Um, you you kind of have to keep an eye on it. It's not something you just simply lock down because quite frankly, anybody with a USB dongle can stick it into the back of a desktop and now you've got bridge networks. So that that's something you have to be very very vigilant about. Uh, there is nothing that's particular to the wireless segment. You know, there's sort of a wireless specific malware type threat. Uh, you know, some of them do explore things like Bluetooth. You know, that that's a vector that we've seen recently. Actually, we just saw some news about uh, mouse jacking. That's a it's a new paradigm. Uh, something that happened on an airplane. Uh, a couple of researchers demonstrated this hack to a uh, a, a security industry writer. Uh, And um, they were able to take over his mouse. Turns out a lot of that traffic is not encrypted. And uh, they were able to take over the mouse and then, subsequent to that, take over his keyboard and perform actions on his laptop. So that's something we're seeing now. So that would be a very interesting uh, area to explore some more. Uh, Today, we're not seeing malware that does that. But it's very easy to weaponize. So um, uh, again, we go back to the basics. In In a lot of this, you go back to the basics. What is my environment? What does it consist of? Having that awareness and being very vigilant about new things that pop up.
0: True, true, no, very true. Now, uh, I mean, do you have, based on your experience and working with the industry uh, for so many years, have you seen that every organization has a proper employee training, educating them about the malwares and you know how to prevent malware? Is that a structured training that is offered on a normal basis to all the employees?
1: That that's a great question. You know, it depends, right? Uh, different environments have different levels of tolerance and, and different level of investment. Uh, now, security awareness—that's something that I think in the last decade or so it's been taken for granted more or less. You know, it's sort of a part of the standard package. You know, we have we have our firewalls, we have our anti-malware, we have our security awareness training, and it's rolled out with annual training for employees. Maybe it's semi-annual for some. Uh, you know, some of the environments that uh, might be operating in more kind of a, a more hostile. Uh, uh, modes, you know, like the industrial automation systems, you know, they might be out uh, in the oil fields, you know, things like that. Um, those folks might get more updated training, uh, where you have people that work for Microsoft, they might get more updated training, and a lot more specific training, you know, that might be specific to their particular roles, like developers. Um, but as far as, uh, you know, any any real focus on malware, we talk about the indicators of compromise, you know, some of the basic things to look for. I've seen a lot of that, you know, uh, if you're getting a piece of spam, what does that mean? What does that look like? Phishing. Uh, and actually getting targeted intel. So I, I, I brought a lot of that when I was at Schneider. Uh, we did targeted bulletins. We'd see a piece of malware. We'd see a piece of phishing email. And we'd send that out. we basically say, look, this is exactly what we're getting out there. We've seen 10, 15, 20 people get it. Look for that. Right? And it was very effective because people, you know, although a lot of them, they would go into spam. A lot of people wouldn't see them. Uh, but we'd use multiple channels to get to our users and they would get an email, they might get a tweet, they might get uh, an internal uh, sort of a Facebook-like social media platform. You might get a posting there. So you try to get it out there in, in, in as many ways as possible to alert folks that this is real and it's happening now. It's much more effective when it's that specific and that timely you know, sort of the just-in-time awareness as opposed to this ongoing drone of, you know, hey, look out for malware. That's not specific. It's not actionable. So we try to make it very specific, very actionable, very timely, and sort of not try to inundate folks with the same kind of message.
0: Right, right. I get it. Now, based on your observations, Igor, how often do organizations across nations have a written policy in place about how to prevent or handle malware. I mean, you just say that you communicate, you send out tweets, you send out, you know, uh, messages, the uh, emails, uh, and, but how, how many organizations have that written policy about malware and how often that policy is reviewed or enforced or how well do they adhere to the policy? Because a lot of times you see that uh, for the sake of, you know, having it be organizations have that policy, but not much is done about it.
1: Right. Yeah, you know, policy st- is being, uh, being stale, right? The, the currency of policy, that's a that's an ongoing concern. Um, you know, a lot of the issues with uh, with policies and, and operating procedures with many companies uh, kind of circle around the, the need for compliance and the fact that we have to have a policy because somebody says we do. Um, there's not necessarily a, an understanding of how the policy flows into the actual operating procedures that drive uh, the circle, the life cycle uh, of security. Um, you know, they once they're written, they go on the shelf, and nobody looks at them for the next, you know, two three years, or until an auditor comes by and says, "Hey, what was the last time you updated it?" Um, so knowing that, you know, policy is a living document that you make it really the a set of very actionable statements. They may be very general in nature. You know, we will fight malware but it does have to cascade down and you have to cross-reference it. So anytime there's a question of why we're doing something, you can always refer back to the policy. And understanding that, of course, we are moving at a rapid pace and threats continue to migrate and things tend to be dynamic, the policies really do need to be updated on at least an annual basis, at least an annual basis. And for standard operating procedures, sooner than that. So uh, as long as you understand that's a requirement, that's kind of your Bible, you you have to have it. Uh, It has to define everything you do, but it also needs to be recognized. It is a living document that needs to be updated very Very frequently.
0: Right, right. You're right about that. Now when it comes to malware attacks, physical security also comes into play like, you know There are so many different uh, uh, variables of physical security that uh, you know impact whether uh, the infections happens or not. So, can you explain to our viewers and listeners how physical security plays a role in malware attack prevention and how they should, you know, use that so to ensure that you know they are protecting themselves and their organizations?
1: Right. Well, we we say in the cybersecurity industry that physical access trumps all. So once you have it, all bets are off. You know, uh, and we've seen attacks in the past, and I've, I've responded to attacks myself. Uh, Where we suspected the physical compromise has occurred and that of course the trick is how do we figure out if anything's actually happened on these systems? You know do we do understand that any kind of a cyber factor? uh, uh, Is also a component of this attack, you know that that tends to be uh, an interesting conversation It's very expensive conversation to have because you do have to employ forensic services to understand exactly what happened to that system And if you don't want to just flatten and rebuild and start with a clean new slate uh, You know typically when a physical attack is involved um, you, you're thinking of a sophistication level that might go beyond just a basic, you know, piece of malware just flew in, right, over email. You know, somebody had to want to get to that system. Um, so, you know, somebody breaks into a data center or somebody steals an executive's laptop. You know, these are the kinds of things that we look for uh, that might be indicators of other thing, a larger thing at play, right? So is it part of a larger attack? Is it part of a campaign? And you know, also recognizing that a lot of these things can be campaigns that go over months and sometimes years. When you talk about nation-state attacks, or you're talking about corporate espionage attacks, uh, these are long-term uh, events with long tails. So, their physical can be an indicator of larger things. Uh, you know, for basic applications, for basic use cases, you know, information workers out there in the world, individual users, unless your job description involves some sort of a clearance level, or if you work for the DoD, or you work for a healthcare provider. You know, where the mandates are so onerous and, and for good reason, uh, you know, unless you, somebody's putting epoxy into USB ports, you know, physical security certainly is paramount. Uh, again, the risk determines the, the level of uh, alertness that you have to have. Uh, everybody should be operating sort of in conditioned yellow at all times. You know, nobody should be uh, unvigilant. You know, vigilance, but again, to what level? And how many layers are going to put around it? You know, yeah, you're going to put in a Faraday cage. It's going to be in a protected uh, data center with armed security, or is it going to be in your laptop bag? You know, sitting under the table at the airport. You know, so the, the you, you have to understand how to navigate that spectrum, and you have to provide the users the tools to make those decisions and kind of help them guide guide them into that right risk posture. Right.
0: I know very true. I mean. Uh... I'm not sure what your observations are, but it seems that, you know, across nations, most of the organizations, they have reactive policies and procedures to manage the risk of malware. Can, for the benefit of our global viewers and listeners, can you explain why proactive policies are much needed in the, versus reactive policies and procedures with the threats that we are dealing with in the cyberspace currently?
1: Right, well proactive certainly beats reactive. You know, action beats reaction every time. And you know, we've seen that proven time and again. Um, understanding that having a preventive posture, having uh, a risk management posture in place, having some solutions. And even if, even if you're not using them actively, but having them sort of staged and having a level of capability and knowledge uh, that you can re- rely upon on demand uh, when threats actually do proliferate, uh, that's critical, right? Because the, that time of response you know, time from detection to the time of effecting response and then to actual mitigation of the threat. Those are very critical and that can be the difference between catastrophic loss and then some manageable loss, loss that you can actually recover from fairly quickly. And you know, let's remember, of course, the, the whole name of the game is let's get back to operations as much as quickly as possible while losing as little as possible. So um, yeah, being, being very effective with the response, that goes back to being proactive. So you have to be aware of the threats, you have to be aware of your own environment, you have to be aware of your own capability and a lot of honesty transparency has to happen in order for that to to be in place so at both at the national level and at the corporate level within each individual organization you have to have that internal honesty you have to kind of look in the mirror and say how well are we equipped to deal with something like this and if you're not then you gotta talk to the powers that be you know at the nation state of course it's the, the legislators and the policy uh... at the organizational level it's the board if you have to go that high it's your risk committee it's the the executives uh that have to basically acknowledge that we have this Swiss in place. You know, the the sticking our head in the sand is not a strategy. Uh what we have to have strategies around transparency and, and honesty.
0: Right, right. they you absolutely right about that. Now we talked about reporting of, you know, malware when uh, entities, I mean organizations or individuals uh, come across that, and uh, we also talked about how uh, communication happens when uh, organizations or enterprises, you know, come up with the malware and uh, they, you know, alert their employees. But are there automated malware alert monitoring systems uh, present across nations?
1: So there are. There are some again private public uh, systems are in place. Uh, you know, we've got InfraGuard here in the U.S. You know, that's run by DHS and FBI. And InfraGard allows uh, industry players to come together within uh, the identified critical infrastructure domains, which we count 16 now. Uh, let's say in energy sector, somebody sees a piece of malware um, that attacks uh, energy components. Uh, they might report that uh, with indicators of compromise. They might uh, send some files up to the FBI to investigate. And other nations have similar things. And I think uh, that InfraGuard model is being employed elsewhere. Um, that, that's one way. Again, it's, it's a little more manual. It's not necessarily automated. It's a portal. You have to log in, you know, so, so things like that. Uh, where you do see a lot of the automation is those threat intelligence uh, systems and platforms where, uh, let's say, an anti-malware vendor might be collecting these indicators automatically from systems. Uh, or they might have honeypots. You know a lot of it goes back to basically having a sensory capability that's global in nature we're trying to reach as many different points uh you know sensory points where you can collect that data and then bring that back to the mothership and then analyze it you know do some of the big data analytics and research to understand the trends to understand what are some of the common factors in these attacks and then pass that information back out to the field to enable more effective better more resilient detection and 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 uh, risk management uh, against those types of threats, um, as far as you know, automated management of that data—we're talking about it now. Of course, we've seen some legislation happening in, the, in the Washington uh, recently, or at least the conversations about that legislation. Where we're talking about sharing that data in a more automated fashion and enabling those channels to be more open and more sustainable—we um, haven't seen that emerge yet. You know, that's certainly on its way. Uh, there are some concerns about privacy. There are some concerns about you know civil liberties, certainly in the U.S. And we're seeing, you know, different lobbying groups and interest groups uh, take their stand, you uh, know, for or against uh, those proposals. Uh, what is definitely understood is that we need an easier way to share that data. So uh, either uh, there has to be some way to anonymize that data, sanitize that data. I you know, kind of to, uh, to uh, deal with some of the privacy concerns and civil liberties concerns, but at the same time, enable the threat intelligence activity that we need to have, you know, to understand how threats prof- prof- uh, proliferate and promote. Uh,
0: propagate throughout the environment. Right, No, we're in the early stages, but I think this is very critical that we develop some sort of, you know, uh, malware error in the system that is uh, effective. Uh, it seems that cryptos and packers make it easier for criminals to create custom code, desired for a particular desktop. The effect of this individualized approach is that signature scanners then becomes ineffective uh... how can this be managed
1: that's a great question you know that goes directly um, it, it, it uh, echoes directly the research that our company has done and then some of the science that we've done over the last six years the recognition that cryptors and packers really uh... evade and, and help the malware writers evade the ability of uh, anti-malware solutions to detect uh... the malware strains and they've relied on that very effectively that's how we're seeing a lot of these new malware strains you know 140 to 150 million per year uh, a lot of these are variants of existing families, you know, when we look at uh, which role crypt- cryptors and packers play, a fundamental role, so how do we get around that? And, uh, you know, of course, it's been an arms race of sorts, you know, the ability to use individual d-packers or decryptors, um, you know, and relying on the sort of a static model of, you know, let's get, you know, 10 of these decryptors embedded into the anti-malware package and then hope that the malware creators don't catch on to what we're doing. right? It, it creates this uh, endless cycle where we're playing catch up with them, again, not only on the signature side, but also on the, on the decryption and, and the polymorphic side. Um, these are very effective techniques. They work. And they continue to be able to monetize all these individual strains that they continue to create. So that's that's a central piece of why the antivirus industry has been so ineffective. They've been playing catch up. And uh, where Rolmod, uh the company that I manage now, Where we've come in, we we came in, we started with the understanding that that is a core function of the malware, the underground malware industry, is to create these malware variants that evade detection. So we went a step beyond that, we went deeper and we looked at system calls at the kernel level. Where We're not looking at the actual files, we're not looking at the actual individual strings in memory, we're looking at the actions on the operating system. And we're able to profile those behaviorally and create what we call dynamic detection profiles that allow us to genotype the entire malware family and then catch every subsequent derivative variant, a derivative strain of that family, regardless of in what form they arrive. Because we don't really care what they look like on disk or in memory. We'll look, we look at what they actually do. And it's a very effective system. It took a long time to develop. and uh, relies on a lot of machine learning and deep learning to actually genotype, to the genotyping operations. Uh, so a lot of it is, you know, I would say, about 95% of it is automated. You know, we throw a piece of malware, actually we, we use about 30 or 40 samples, and once we have them in the system, we can genotype and we can develop that, that sequence. And once we know it, everything that arrives that belongs to that family is detected immediately. So uh, we know today that about 50 uh, malware families are responsible for about 80 or more percent of malware infections out there. I
0: see. So
1: 50. So if you're able to do that, if you're actually, actually able to identify those, uh, those genotype factors, you can stop a lot of this before it starts. So uh, the industry has been somewhat effective by sharing a lot of the intelligence on the back end between different malware, uh, anti-malware firms. Uh, They've been somewhat effective in shortening the amount of time it takes to develop individual signatures and distribute them. But what uh, they haven't been effective effective in is solving the problem at the root. And that's kind of what we're trying to attack the problem. And we've been uh, successful so far. We're looking for our next finance round right now to see if we can bring that out to the masses.
0: Great, great. Now, we would love to talk about your initiative in a, a few minutes, but uh, as as the threat factors increasingly change from relatively simplistic signature-based threats to more complex behavior-based threats, it seems that the awareness has not evolved as quickly. What are your observations?
1: Well, the anti-malware industry, as much as the Organized criminal malware industry—they're uh, sort of in the same in the same business, right? It's a, it's a very volumetric business. Uh, you know, a lot of adhesion exists within the anti-malware industry. You know, somebody accepts uh, McAfee as their savior uh, from malware threats, and that, that that relationship tends to sustain for uh, a long period of time. A lot of the corporate interests, of course, are in play, and we talked about some of the other factors. You know, strategic relationships, OEM relationships, etc., that tend to 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 sustain those relationships over a long time. Uh, we're not seeing uh, the easy switching from one malware uh, anti-malware solution to another. And the unfortunate reason for that is they're all about the same effectiveness. Uh, nobody is qualitatively better than the rest. And you look at Gartner, you look at some of the emerging uh, solutions, you look at some of the old legacy industry players. Uh, by and large, do uh, you have some categories of, of emerging players, some categories of, of players that are considered to be sort of standard Players in the community, and there isn't really a lot of uh, reason to switch today. Uh, you know, whether you're using Kaspersky, McAfee, Symantec, Microsoft, Avast, y- you're getting about the same level of value uh, for that investment. And uh, the prices are more or less standardized. You're not getting a lot, of, uh, a lot of play there in terms of advantages on the buying side. So why switch? And that's why we're not seeing a lot of that switching. Uh, now, we have seen uh, the proliferation of, of the freeware. Uh, model, the freemium model. Uh, Avast currently uh, shares the top uh, two uh, places with Microsoft. It's Microsoft and Avast, and they share about 35% of the anti malware market. Um, Avast is free. Unless you get into 10, 15 users or more, it's absolutely free. And uh, currently currently they claim about a quarter billion users in the world, half of them in the mobile space. So you see some of these trends in the industry where the the user community is looking for the next solution and they're willing to explore. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of that qualitative difference today in the marketplace. And we're hoping that we can become that qualitatively different solution that actually attacks the malware threat at the beginning, uh, as opposed to just trying to play catch up. So uh, legacy players, I think a big factor in the fact that they they tend to sustain their positions is the fact that nobody's really coming up with anything new
0: right right so so based on uh, your observations of how the malwares are uh, treated or you know how the response is to the malwares what are some strategies that can be used to stem the advanced malware tide? and whether the strategies that are you just mentioned you know a f- few uh points about uh, how some of them are ineffective and how what you are doing right now is trying to is different and how you are trying to manage it in a uh, more efficient way. Can you explain a little bit about how uh, what we have currently as anti-malware, you know, softwares versus what your company or organization is developing? Uh, what is the difference between them?
1: Sure. So as I mentioned, legacy software, uh, legacy anti-malware software, tends to be signature based. Uh, you know, McAfee, Symantec, Microsoft. You know, in fact, Microsoft's antivirus solution uh, was brought on uh, externally. Uh, from a company called GCAD, which was a Armenian company back in 2001-2002 timeframe. And so that coincided with the creation of the Trustworthy Computing Division and uh, Bill Gates writing the Trustworthy Computing Memo that kind of created the Microsoft's push for, for cybersecurity. Um, so you, you see a lot of these kind of legacy solutions that have, that have continued to live on um, despite the uh, the complete shift in the way that malware actually works. Um, so uh, when we were looking at 10,000, 50,000, maybe a million new malware strains per year, that was an effective model. You could basically scale up your analyst pool and you could throw more humans into the mix and create more cycles around the problem and then create more signatures. So that, that seemed to be effective until you know we got to the current state where we're looking at hundreds of millions of malware samples. So that's impossible. It's unsustainable. sustainable. And when you look at companies like Kaspersky, who used three thousand analysts, you've got Symantec about three or four thousand analysts. Um, y- you have uh, folks trying to play catch up and then basically expanding their analyst base, looking for those strains and looking for uh, creating those individual uh, signatures. That cannot be sustained, right? The automation that's happening on the malware creator side, the organized crime side. Um, the, the use of crypters and polymorphism and, and packers and the fact that they can continue to spit out tens of thousands of, of uh, strains per hour in an automated fashion and continue to be able to monetize it, uh, it sort of negates this whole notion of uh, this entire model being sustainable. So this industry is dead. And the industry itself has said we're dead, right? You know, Symantec's uh, senior VP a couple of years ago said antivirus as we know it is dead. And, um, and that's something that we, deal, we have to deal with. So there are some emerging solutions that are happening out there. You know, we've got Carbon Black, we've got Threat, Stat- uh, threat, uh, yeah, threat Track, um, who are focusing more on the behavioral models. They look at, uh, at threat intelligence being a major factor. Uh, the problem is these models rely upon the notion of these systems being connected and the threat intel being able to flow both ways from the systems and back to the systems. Uh, the constant signature updates, still a big part of it. FireEye, that was their big uh, claim to fame when they came out on the market, that they can sustainably detect threats based on these uh, virtual machine systems that they had within the, the product. And unfortunately, they still have to use signature updates. And they may not come as frequently, but they do have to use them. And so, you know, you're out of update for about two, three days, you're ineffective. On the legacy signature-based anti-malware side, uh, you're out of update by hours, you're already ineffective and the latest threat that's arriving right now, you won't be able to detect. So again, these models are very ineffective. Uh, What we've come up with is the solution that short circuits that entire model. We don't wait for the threat to arrive. We've genotyped it before it's even developed. So every subsequent strain, you're vaccinated against. That's basically the idea. So we'll look at the behavior at the very deep, at the ring zero of the operating system. And we understand that from a system call perspective, We don't care about what the file looks like on disk. It can be encrypted. It can be uh, morphed. It can be packed. We simply don't care. Same thing in memory. We don't care. If it arrives by email through a phishing attack uh, over the network, over the wireless network, over Bluetooth, it doesn't really matter. So we don't focus on the various vectors uh, of introduction because, quite frankly, we can't sustain that either. We can't predict how the threat will arrive tomorrow. A lot of these sort of holistic security models rely on that. Can we cover all the points of entry, either to the system or to the network? And that's impossible. That's a losing battle. So we're not even getting involved in that battle. We're going beyond that. We're going to the very basic atomic component of the network, which is the endpoint. And then we're going deeper than that. We're going to the very root kernel of the operating system. And we'll look at the system calls that are happening there. So again, had this been done manually, it would have been impossible. We'd need 3,000 analysts, just like Kaspersky, Semantic, and the rest of them. Um, we're doing it with deep machine learning. And that's why it took six years in stealth mode to develop these systems, where we understand the analysis piece and the signature or, or the dynamic detection profile piece has to go hand in hand with what's happening on the endpoint. So all that intelligence, all that research, all that analysis that happens up front, that's the main piece. Uh, whatever, However we use that on the endpoint, that's the, that's the secondary piece. So um, that's why we didn't come out with a product you know, three, four years ago that said, here's some partial capability, and here's some static signatures. We, we negated that entire notion. No static signatures, it's all dynamic, and it's all genotype. We're looking at malware families, we're not looking at strains, and that's what makes us very effective. We can short-circuit the entire monetization model. The, the criminal malware monetization model goes out the window. And you know what we like to say is, we drink their milkshake. We, we disrupt the entire model completely. And that's one of the taglines that we use, we're the criminal cyber malware disruptor.
0: Right, right. Now there are, you know, some reports that anti-viruses uh, are, you know, history. It, it's not effective anymore. Correct. Sure. Would you agree to that?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, we're looking at the internal industry data. I mean, that's out there. You know, Gartner has spoken about it. Uh, many, many researchers have spoken about it. Uh, Anton Chubakin, who I respect immensely, you know, he's a big analyst at uh, Gartner, uh, who focuses on malware and and uh, systems like that. Forty-five uh, percent, if you're lucky you know, and uh, as soon as you go out of update cycle, it's ineffective. You know, we've seen tests, we actually do, uh, we've done a number of internal tests ourselves against some competitors uh, where we take our signatures and we can freeze them uh, or we can use signatures from a year and a half, two years ago, or dynamic detection profiles is what we call them. And we can compare that to a system that's out of update uh, for, you know, maybe a week. And we continue to to have detection where their systems do not. So again, that genotype model has been validated uh, I think it's very effective and uh, all we need to do right now is just expand our coverage for all the existing malware families in the world and that will be able to go to market. So that's really the effort right now for the next six months.
0: Right. I mean, there are millions of people who depend on antivirus softwares like, you know, Symantec and all that. And uh, if they are effective only like 30, 40 percent, then uh, I think it's a serious, you know, uh, critical risk everyone is facing without, you know, being aware. They just rely on these softwares thinking that uh, by having that, you know, they are protected. And uh, they have probably you no know, idea that, you know, their systems are not even half protected. So it is a cause of concern. And I hope that. Systems like yours or products like yours uh, that are on their way that would be able to uh, bring some positive change for everyone. Now, there are multiple types of threats facing each entity across nations, and hackers might attempt to uh, access private information resources from inside or outside the organization. Meanwhile, the public internet carries viruses, spyware, and other types of malware that get introduced. To unsuspecting users during everyday communication activities such as opening an email, as we talked, you know, previously, or even when we are at the, when they are at the airport when they try to charge their, you know, phones, uh, and things like activities like that. So, left untreated, malware usually causes disruption or complete denial of service to one or one or more network application services to launch such attacks. How can intruders tamper? I mean, when we talk about, let's say, the airports, those uh, you know kiosks where people charge their cell phones, how do malware uh, how do intruders get access to that?
1: Well, we've seen uh, a lot of uh, that work uh, done on the criminal side with ATMs, right, the the cash machines, uh, where they're very effective at mimicking a, a real cash machine or, or an actual access terminal, uh, where they can masquerade uh, as a real thing, and then. Uh, either grab the pin codes or actually shoulder surf using some kind of a webcam and then uh, also grab the, the, uh, the card strip and, and get the strap information off of it. Um, so we've seen that happen elsewhere. Uh, so this isn't exactly new. Uh, now compromising uh, USB outlets um, and then uh, using that as a vector of attack, that's something new. But again, it's not, it's not entirely unexpected. Uh, we've seen attacks through the um, headphone jack on iPhones. And this is going back a couple of uh, revs of the iOS. Uh, I think this go back, goes back to I- iPhone 4, or maybe iPhone 5 even. Um, but the attack came through manufactured headphones that actually used voice commands to compromise an iPhone and either you know, unlock it or, or perform some sort of an action. And let that, that actually led to an update of the iOS to prevent that sort of activity. Uh, so again, you know, the, the threat vectors continue to evolve and we're dealing with the world here, right? We're not dealing with a particular nation state or a particular set of researchers. Uh, We're dealing with basically the world, and it's very difficult to predict how a threat will arrive tomorrow. So again, being vigilant and being uh, very uh, open to the idea of the attacks that are coming uh, and uh, being prepared for the fact that they will come, that compromise is an eventuality, not just a possibility, that there is no chance that you will be one, the one environment that's unaffected. That's unrealistic, and we've seen a lot of that sort of magical thinking happening, where you know if we do certain things the correct way, and or if we don't put out a PR release that says we take security seriously, we will not attract the wrath of the hackers. You know, I've I've had those conversations with executives where they say, you know, we're not going to make security a part of our brand because we don't want to attract attention where somebody's going to rub our nose in it and say, well, no, you you're not secure. Uh, you know, I think uh, having having the uh, uh, desire to be secure. Does not immediately attract attention uh, attention of somebody, or, uh, you know, and even if a hack comes, it it comes, right? As long as you're prepared to deal with it. Uh, So, again, I think it goes back to the mentality of be ready for the attack, expect that it will come, and don't necessarily focus on the vectors of attack because you can't predict those. And you certainly cannot control your entire perimeter because, quite frankly, the perimeter is gone. And when your employees sit at an airport and they plug in their phone, or the laptop into an outlet that's compromised, Mm -hmm. there goes your whole security model. right? Mm -hmm. So be sure that you can control what you can control, affect the outcomes that you can, and then uh, focus on the critical data. And again, do those risk models and do the threat models. Those go hand in hand. Again, that means you have to have good thinking within the enterprise. You have to have specialists who understand how to do it. If you don't have that, Bring them in, and a lot of this cannot happen on an outsourced basis. You can outsource a lot of the operations, you can outsource a lot of the kind of the threat management activities, but the strategic thinking about the kinds of threats that you're facing that has to come from within. You know, as, as the old saying goes, you can't outsource your strategy, yes. and people don't think of this strategically in a lot of places
0: yes uh, most of the places i would say you're absolutely right about that now uh we also see that you know organizations are trying to reduce the attack surface you know that they don't uh, on a lot of you know organizations computers you will see that there are no you know drives out there so people can you know try to uh plug in or you know try to install something that take extract something so i mean i am sure it helps a little bit but it's not uh, completely proof strategy but Anyway, that is a good, uh, start for some organizations. But now things that connects have moved to the browser. There are some who say to keep browser plugins patched. Does that help?
1: Well, I mean, again, vectors are vectors, and you can focus on those. Uh, you know, we can we, we certainly have to focus on a lot of those. We have to understand things broadly as how do how does data move in and out of the enterprise, and how do connections happen within the enterprise? And a lot of these things are happening through a browser. You're absolutely right. Uh, You know, a lot of things are happening in the cloud, and especially that whole shadow IT component that I talked about earlier. You know, a a lot of that happens through the browser. And, you know, I've seen uh, scenarios where folks are restricted. You know, the, the security apparatus does what they think is a good job of kind of restricting that activity. And guess what? They take their laptops, they go to Starbucks, and then they're uploading the files that they can't upload to some other cloud, that belongs to a third party because that's what they have to do for their business. Because they've got a deal that's got to blow up, or they've got you know some contractual thing they have to do, or they're just trying to support a customer and they can't. Right? So going too restrictive uh, can be sort of a, can have an opposite effect because you're pushing people to do their work in an unapproved manner. So that's something you have to be mindful of. But yeah, the browser can t- t- tends to be the biggest threat right now because that's how we communicate mostly. You know, the email is certainly there. That continues to be the biggest vector for malware threats. It, they still come over email, the good old way, it still works. Uh, spam phishing, spear phishing, all these attacks are definitely uh, very prevalent. Uh, but the browser, definitely. You have to understand what kind of browsers are in place. Plugins, if you if you can restrict them, do it. Um, again, you know, how much control can you exert over your entire en- environment within the enterprise? Um, it's questionable. You know, today we are looking at again a lot of the mobile workforces out there. You know, some environments are 50, 60, 70 percent mobile. Um, you know, with BYOD models, and now there's something that's a CYOD, choose your own device, which is a little weird. Basically, you know, we're, we're offering devices to folks and saying, you know, we're going to pay for them, but you get to choose which one you want uh, to kind of try to limit our support, uh, support <laughs> platforms and, and, and our exposure there. Uh, but, but you have that proliferation uh, beyond the enterprise. We don't really have that control. And quite frankly, people don't like to share their devices right so it's either yours or it's the corporate the corporate device that's why BYOD has been sort of you know it's it's been an interesting an interesting factor uh in the enterprise it management bottom line is if it's out there it's threatened and we need to understand that anytime anything goes outside the walls of the enterprise it's entering a hostile environment right it's exposed from the second it leaves and quite frankly most of my enterprise is still, it, today is operating in a hostile environment itself. So it might be on your corporate network, it might be inside, but it's still very hostile. And you know, we've done tests before, where we, especially from a malware standpoint. You know, some environments you don't even know how much malware is running around because you simply don't have a way of detecting it. And if you update, you know, once a week or once a month, uh, you may not be able to catch 90% of it. You know, we've seen the tests; we've done our own tests. Where, you know, if your McAfee or Symantec or Kaspersky is out of update range for, you know, a mere amount of hours, uh, you might be unprotected, right? Yeah. So, that th- knowing that, understanding that, um, y- you have to, again, focus on the basics. What is your most important stuff? Protect it, be vigilant to it, and then have other ways of knowing when something goes wrong. And that's where that layered approach goes in. And also, threat management it really has to be about information gathering. And information analysis, uh, it can't be a simple one-layer solution where one thing is going to tell you what's wrong. Uh, have prevention in place—that's exactly where we come in. You know, trying to prevent against malware execution and stop it right as it happens. Uh, we're not trying to stop everything, and we're not looking at the vectors. We're looking at the final endpoint that it tries to compromise. And I think having that strategy in place, where you look at what you can, you focus on the endpoints. Uh, because that's where the data lives and that's where the access happens and that takes us back to the whole browser conversation. right? The browser is a part of the endpoint, the threat is gonna arrive through it and it will try to do something to the system. If it's malware, we can catch it. If it's some vulnerability that's being exploited, then we go back to uh, having a good vulnerability management and threat detection capability. That allows you to catch that.
0: Right, right. No, that's a very good analysis and explanation. Now, uh, as malware is being increasingly aimed at mobile devices such as smartphones, they they increase in popularity. It is said that one in every 14 downloads from the internet may now contain malware code. Social media, Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, they're all seeing a rise in the number of tactics used to spread malware to computers, even LinkedIn. That is a large ratio. What are your thoughts?
1: Well, it, it definitely keeps us in business, doesn't it? So we, we certainly have, uh, yeah, we, we're seeing the huge proliferation of mobile malware. In fact, the understanding within the community, within the user space, is catching up. And what we're seeing is the, the slowing of growth uh, and expansion of anti-malware solutions on the desktop side, the traditional side, mm-hmm. and, uh, and the growth on the mobile side. So a lot of the anti-malware solution growth is happening in the mobile space. You know, I've asked uh, one of the big uh, competitors of Microsoft, You know, one of the top, uh, I think they're the top two right now, they're looking at mobile as their main growth factor. So that that's encouraging. I think uh, the, the fact that the industry is keeping up, the user community is recognizing uh, that um, mobile malware is continuing to, to proliferate and kind of raise its ugly head in their space as well, uh, they're catching up to that notion. So that's good. That's encouraging. Um, as far as uh, what do we do with that, about it, I mean, we, we continue to explore, we continue to understand, do the research, understand what's uh, if there are specific uh, things that are happening in the, model, in the mobile world that are not happening in the desktop world. Uh, you know, is there an ease of propagation? Uh, of course, understanding the specifics of the mobile world, you know, is there something we can do with the carriers, with the telcos um, that stops it within their network? Uh, you know, do we need to have some partnerships to happen there? Um, you know the international nature of this right that basically you're connected to a global network uh that's uh that relies on the telcos networks on the back end uh, you know that everybody's got an ip address you know that's something that's also interesting um that we haven't seen before um and you know we're looking at uh, at models where proliferation can occur very quickly and social is great for that and we've seen that be- being very successful with while we creators so um we, we have to be vigilant. We have to keep up with the shifting paradigms. As models change, so our defensive models have to change. But again, proactive is very important. Yes, I think a lot of these things we can predict. And if carriers invest into it now, as opposed to trying to pay catch up after you know the horse has left the proverbial barn, uh, I think we can be much more successful down the line. Uh, today, we're sort of kind of opening our eyes and going, wow, there's mobile malware. And the industry is understanding it, but I don't think the providers on, on the telco side are really playing uh, ball yet.
0: Right, right. Now, I agree with you on that. Now, we need global standards on policies around malware to ensure security for everyone and every nation. It's governments, industries, organizations, academia, and individuals, perspective. So, uh, But I don't see any efforts seen in that direction. What are your thoughts and observations? Do you see any efforts in that direction?
1: Uh, from a national, uh, nation-state yeah. perspective? Nation perspective. Well, I mean, we're seeing what's happening on the nation-state side with the use of malware for malicious reasons, right? For intel gathering or for disrupting somebody else's intel gathering capability. And you know, we talked about the uh, uh, the uh, developments between uh, Ukraine and uh, and uh, Russia. We've seen uh, what happened in the Baltic states. Uh, we saw uh, the Russian aggression in Georgia. You know, that took place also over the cyberspace. Uh, so, cyber is becoming more and more part of that hybrid conflict model uh, that includes kinetic and cyber. And uh, from that perspective, we see nation states investing into the offensive capability. And of course, that has to bring investment into the defensive capability. Now, what's important to understand for us is, uh, again, we go back to, to the notion of 80% or more of our national infrastructure is in private hands. So there's only so much that the national government can do. And you know, unless you're China, we have, you can exert a lot of that administrative and hierarchical control within the, within the uh, private space. Uh, for the U.S., for France, for Britain, for Germany, uh, you do have to rely on that partnership. You can't issue an edict and simply roll out some solution or some some kind of a a product or a platform that binds everybody together and protects everybody equally. I think actually the great strength of our model is the fact that we have different types of controls and different layers of controls. And we have the freedom to innovate and operate and, and build layers of defense that might be effective for a particular industry or a particular sector within that industry. Uh, so I think that actually is a strength, that diversity is a strength. Uh, you know, we've seen the failure of uniform models, uh, certainly with the OPM breach, and I've written and spoken extensively about that uh, both here and on the Hill. Um, the the notion that uh, you rely on a single system to do everything, it, it can have its disadvantages. And so, um, again, private-public partnerships are important. I think nations need to rely on the industry to, to come up with good solutions. It needs to be encouraged. Uh, there needs to be sort of an open channel dialogue where the data doesn't flow a single, you know, just in one direction. We've seen that happen a little bit with InfraGard in the past, uh, where a lot of the data is being collected, but we're not getting a lot of the things back. So we sort of discourage that open, open dialogue, and it creates kind of a data collection uh, situation. That's not something we want. We mm-hmm. want open dialogue, open debate, we want the ability to affect outcomes at the national level. And bring a lot of that notion and um, innovation into the uh, into the nation's uh, national space, uh, where we're not just talking about protecting ourselves and protecting our own enterprise environments or individual users, but uh, really looking at it from more of a holistic national defense cyber defense standpoint. So
0: right. I think that,
1: that's the next important step.
0: Right now, I hear you on that. Now this is the last question. Uh, we have during the whole session we have talked about you know how uh, they they about the ineffectiveness of you know some several of these. Uh, anti-malware systems and how what you are trying to do is uh, very different than what you know uh, the, it is in the out in the market currently so would you uh, share some information about your current venture Roma cyber systems and uh, especially to tell the global community our viewers and listeners that how would that help the security community manage their cyber security challenges better
1: Sure, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity uh, to discuss this. So, it's an exciting project. Um, RoMAD Cyber Systems has been in in existence since about 2008, 2009. Uh, The core team has actually worked on a number of other products and other software software projects. Uh, The last one was called Morpher, which actually dealt with code morphing and code packing. And they worked on obfuscating um, uh, mobile application code. Um, for intellectual property protection purposes. So uh, the team was very intimately involved with polymorphism, code-packing, crypting, et cetera. Uh, so they really understood, uh, well, how malware writers were using those same technologies for malicious purposes. And that kind of led to the creation of, of romance technology. Uh, they need to go beyond that layer and actually focus on the specific behavior uh, that these malware systems uh, or malware packages create. Um, so the team got together. They monetized the original project, they exited it, and then uh, once that firm was sold, they began the RoMath Cyber Systems Project in 2008, 2009. And they began with a lot of research. They brought in a number of PhDs and PhD candidates who actually were very heavy in math and uh, deep learning, machine learning, and they tried to apply those strategies and methodologies to creating this genotyping uh, platform for malware, where we can analyze 10, 15, 20, 30 pieces of malware and then create that one genotype family. Um, that laid at the foundation, right, of the entire system. Uh, before they ever went to the endpoint, they wanted to understand, can we typecast malware based on these families that we understood? And they were successful. Of course, of course it took a long time, and uh, the, they did not take outside investment for a long time. They wanted to kind of keep, uh, keep this stealthy. They wanted to figure out if this worked. And of course, given the nature of the solution and the fact that it could be so disruptive to the criminal organizations, uh, they wanted to maintain that level of confidentiality to prevent any sort of a development on their side where it could thwart their efforts. Uh, so it took about five, six years, and uh, about 2014, the product reached its uh, beta stage, and uh, I was uh, uh, at the time I was at Schneider Electric as the chief security officer of the Americas region. And uh, the product came to me. The team came to me. They reached out and said, look, uh, we'd like to understand if this could be something useful in the industrial automation sector. And I saw immediate usefulness because we're dealing with the use cases in that particular sector uh, with systems that are supposedly isolated yet become exposed to threats. And we're talking about the Stuxnet uh, scenario there particularly where systems are supposed to be exposed. They're supposed to be air-gapped operating in the industrial space. Uh, yet they do have access and uh, you know things can be introduced to them. So we needed for something that was sustainable over a long period of time where we could detect and thwart malware threats on an ongoing basis without these constant hourly updates, which is what we rely upon in the corporate sector. And uh, we were able to see immediate value. Now, uh, when I left Schneider in uh, June of 2015 and uh, went to DC and joined a think tank, started to mentor at the Mach 37 Cyber Accelerator, um, this gave me an opportunity to explore this relationship more, and um, I started to mentor and advise the executives at uh, Romad about how to enter the market, how to finish the product, bring it to, to the shores of the U.S., and see if we can enter more of a broader market, not just the industrial at- automation space, but we saw applicability within the entire range of industries and, and personal user space as well. Uh, so I took over officially as the CEO of the company in January of 2015. And uh, we've been working hard on uh, bringing our new fiver- financing round to a close, which is happening right now. It's very exciting. We're talking to a number of investor groups uh, here in the U.S. and also uh, externally. Um, a lot of interest. Uh, you know, this is a net new way of approaching malware, so we think it's, it can be disruptive for the industry. It can also be very disruptive for the criminal organizational uh, uh, criminal organizations out there that are relying on malware as a key piece of their uh, of their monetization strategy. So uh, we're looking to close our final trial, extend our runway for the next six months or so, and then bring the product to market. So the engine has been built. It's been tested. It's been very successful. We've been in small private beta for a while. And now we're just looking to finish uh, the creation of the coverage for the existing malware families out there in the world. We're at about 50 60% done. And so we need for that final push to get us to the finish line and introduce the product to the global market.
0: That's great. That is really impressive, and uh, I'm really excited about hearing all this development, positive development, and I see your passion. You're so passionate about this uh, field, and uh, you have entered this organization bringing that passion and energy and uh, you are on the right path. It seems that, you know, there is a need for anti-malware system that is effective. And uh, based on what you are saying, uh, you could probably, you know, provide uh, the answer to the community, security community that everybody is looking about, you know, that they they need something very effective. So uh, congratulations on that. And uh, most important, best wishes, and I hope that in the near future, uh, your product is out, your system is out, and it would help the security community uh, help manage the cybersecurity risk better. So we are, we all look forward to that. And as we do more research and as we come up with more, uh, you know, points to discuss, I hope that you come again and uh, discuss... Uh, uh, all your you know initiative and uh, give more information and share more information about how your system would uh, Help manage the growing the uh, malware risk that we all are facing So thank you for you know sharing your time and thank you for spending uh, more than an hour uh, Discussing this very critical risk with uh, all of us uh, with, uh, with me And then I'm sure that is going to help the all of our global viewers and listeners uh, prepare themselves to you know, protect themselves in uh, this uh, very complex, you know, security vulnerable world right now. So thank you Igor, for that.
1: Thank you, Jashree. Yeah, our purpose is very simple. We just want to make the term antivirus mean something again.
0: Yes. So
1: yes. look forward to that, and um, I'll, I'll be very happy to join you again. And thank you for this opportunity.
0: Thank you, Igor. You're welcome, and uh, it was a pleasure. So over the years, malware has become very complex and constantly evolving area of computer technology that impacts cyberspace, geospace, and space. And of all the problems that are encountered across nations, few are as predominant and costly as malware attacks and the associated cost of dealing with them. Understanding how they are created, distributed, how they work, how they evolve over time, and the attack vector it uses can help security community deal with it proactively. This will create more efficient and effective defense and response tools, technologies, and processes that is the reason Risk Group has launched the Cybersecurity Risk Research Center, whose focus is to identify, evaluate, and manage the risk-facing NGIOA in CGS, uh, to discuss, debate, and define necessary framework, structure, processes, tools, and technologies to manage the security risk of not only the digital global age, but also of the tech- coming technological super conversions. Yeah. We at Risk group believe that risk management, security, and peace walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to fulfill any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts are leading to each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain. Until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes security. So, if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. Uh, for more information on the Risk Roundups, to watch the Risk Roundup videos or to hear the Risk Roundup podcast, please go to RiskGroupLSE.com. Do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayshri Pandya, host of Risk Roundups. And see you next time.